Well, now that we have the forest, and what an interesting forest it is, let's get into some trees when it comes to spiritual gifts in the church. And as Paul embarks on this topic, he wants to establish three truths right out of the gates in the first three verses. Though we would be eager if we are those Corinthians to jump down to verse four and just get into the matter. Let's look at all these gifts. Let's talk about them. Let's debate them. Let's discuss them. He says, nope. Before you go rushing into that discussion, let me set some parameters. And I've got three of them so that we can rightly understand what we're getting into. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. This, this really is the introduction to the rest of the chapter by way of the first three verses. To which Paul says, no entering this magical forest, this wonderful forest of spiritual gifts without first considering these three things. So the first truth that he wants you to consider is this. To know the truth, God's truth about spiritual gifts is good. First one. It's a good thing to learn about spiritual gifts. That's, that's right in front of our faces. When he says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, sisters, I don't want you to be unaware. That's a wonderful encouragement for us to jump all in, isn't it? Because based on our experiences and backgrounds in various denominations and churches, when it comes to spiritual gifts, sometimes you see churches just want to ignore the discussion altogether because imagine that, it becomes divisive. Well, that was happening 1,970 years ago in the church in Corinth. Not much changes. And on the other hand, you might come from a background where this was the text. That on a regular basis, a preacher was making this their soapbox, highlighting the spiritual gifts and maybe with a particular emphasis on a few of the gifts that become the sine qua non, the, 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 the major emphasis that the truly spiritual people have these gifts and the rest of us are a bunch of nothings. The irony is that both of those are the wrong approach to ignore them or to overemphasize them. And to use the same illustration yet again, you know, we're trying to avoid the ditches of ignorance on one side, which Paul addresses right away here, but also in that, not overemphasizing them. I mean, he does devote three chapters, 12, 13, and 14, to this discussion, but in a nice spiritual gift sandwich, if you will, in those three chapters. Chapter 13, right in the middle, is about love. Why? Well, because when you're going to talk about all the wonderful gifts you're given, if you start turning them inward and using them for self, you will lose love. And when you lose love, you lose unity. Because then it becomes all about you. And spiritual gifts aren't all about us. They're about the great giver of them. So Paul has to address, as he does a litany of other matters in this church. Now, I do want to just set the context for the church at Corinth. I really didn't say too much about the church at Corinth a few weeks back when we were in chapter 15, uh, the emphasis so much being on the resurrection. But when, when even I mentioned that, I alluded to the fact that there were false views on the resurrection, chapter 15, that Paul had to then make very clear uh, this Jesus whom we have dedicated our lives to and we call our Savior and Lord did rise from the dead. 
Uh, if you look at even that first phrase, now concerning, that is kind of Paul cluing you into, I'm having to talk about uh, certain items and, and that kind of sets the table to move into a new discussion. He uses it in chapter seven, chapter eight, chapter 16. It's just kind of his shorthand for saying, I've got a new topic to address, Corinthians, because this church was childish. Um, the church at Corinth, Paul helped plant in his second missionary journey around 51 AD. And he was there for a year and a half and it was successful. Uh, as in the word of God did its work. People were coming to Christ. All types of people. Clearly when he's talking about the way they were treating each other, both rich and the poor and the slave and the master in this book in relations within, all types of people were coming to Christ in Corinth. And that was a great thing. But here in writing this letter in 55, now just three or four years later, why I say it's a childish church, because that's about the age of a toddler, isn't it? A, a, a baby that needs corrected and instructed. That's the type of church this was. That's why there are so many issues with this church. And if you in your own spare time this week want to read two things, I would encourage you to read Acts 18, which is when Paul came to Corinth, and read about the actual narrative there. But then also just go through and read the whole of 1 Corinthians. And, and what you'll find out is all the sins that he has to address in this church really correspond to the life that these Corinthians had been living prior to coming to Christ. They brought their sins with them into this church. That shouldn't surprise us in the day and age we're in, should it? Or your own experience? What church have you been in in any type of particular place in the country where maybe if you've lived there a while, you're like, you know what? Some of the stuff we're dealing with in this church kind of is prevalent in the area around us. Now, I know sinners going to sin and uh, we're depraved all around, but there are particular sins, maybe to particular areas based on the culture you live in that come with it when you come to Christ in the church and you not, are not immediately, though you're immediately justified by faith and right with God, you are still what? getting rid of that old man and that old woman and becoming the new person that you're to be in Christ. And so it, it shouldn't surprise you when you go through 1 Corinthians this week and find out some of the sins that he had to address. Why? Because Corinth was, at the time when Paul came in 50 or 51 AD, it was a major hub, a multicultural area in the Mediterranean that it, it, at a certain time period, uh, you know, we looked in Daniel from the Greeks to the Romans. It was, it was uh, part of the center of the Greek empire, but then 146, Rome takes over and really ransacks it and leaves it alone for about 100 years until 44, uh, Julius Caesar says, hey, this place has a strategic location. It is kind of right in the middle uh, of the Roman Empire from north to south and then from east to west and uh, with that comes a bunch of commerce, comes a bunch of trade, comes a bunch of business, comes a bunch of people trying to start a new life, uh, make a new living and with that you're going to have an amalgama amalgamation of cultures and religions and lifestyles. Uh, that's a picture somebody took on their phone around the time when uh, uh, Corinth was uh, ransacked by Rome. It's amazing how the pictures back then looked like portraits, but we're lucky to have one uh, from Sosthenes. He, he uh, DM'd me yesterday with it. Uh, that's Acro-Corinth, the big uh, mountain in the background, and there you see temples, and you see a place that was well-established and all that, though Hellenized, was wiped off the face of the map. And then about 100 years later, it rises again as one of the premier Roman colonies under Caesar. 
So it's really a Greco-Roman culture at its peak. It's about 50,000 people. Uh, maybe it inflates whenever there's certain festivals and certain times of year, certainly during the Isthmian Games. But in those uh, multiculturalism uh, aspects, you had different religions and different gods along with worldviews that our vestiges or leftovers from Greek culture. We all know about the Greek philosophers and we know about the Greek orators and they, they would, have, would have been um, not too far away over in Athens, maybe a two days journey, 60 miles. And so even if you read Acts 17, some of the issues that Paul's addressing there when he speaks in, in Athens would have been similar worldviews that you know, 60 miles away would have had still the same impact. And so he's coming into that melting pot of ideologies and with it, not just bad ideas, but bad living. Because in a place like that where really anything goes, whatever God you have, that's fine. Keep it to yourself or adopt more gods. Then you also have people going to live the way they want to live. And it was, a, it was not just a city of commerce and uh, philosophy. It was a city of trade uh, because of its pathway between uh, Rome in the west and Asia Minor in the east. It had a rich history of philosophy and oratory. It had entertainment from the Greek tragedies and comedies. And it had the Greek games there. It had gladiatorial conquests of fighting to the death. It had it all. It was a Vegas. It was a LA. It was a New York City. And it was where Paul goes to plant a church. And God caused it to grow as he says in 1 Corinthians 3. And he says, it didn't grow here because I came in acting and speaking like everybody else surrounding you, trying to impress you with my speech, trying to impress you with some type of nobility. I, Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 2, none of that was the reason for the gospel to work because the gospel stands opposed to all those things that you in your old world view brought into it. None of it works with God. None of it impresses God. And the gospel isn't dependent upon any of it. That's the type of church Corinth was. So when you read about uh, starting in chapter one through four, the big one that he had to dress right out of the gates was factionalism. We shouldn't be surprised because that was a part of the lifestyle in Corinth. You would find your favorite speaker, your favorite philosopher, and that was what, who you wanted to listen to. And you would go in maybe these public venues and hear these orators duke it out and say, oh, I'm, by, I'm with that guy. No, I'm with that guy. And the debates would rage, and it was kind of a sport. So should it be surprising that then in this church in Corinth, this baby toddler church, that they bring that same fanboy mentality into the church? I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I mean, it's in the heart of man to want to pick a winner, isn't it? And to kind of, you know, identify ourselves with them. So Paul has to address factionalism and division in the church because Corinth was bringing that sin baggage in. That even though there was a church in Corinth, there was so much Corinth in that church. And like a careful surgeon, he, he had to cut with the word without killing the patient. Then you have five through seven, all types of immorality being addressed in the church. Lawsuits in chapter five, Paul asking, why are you guys so quick to sue each other? Well, it's because in the culture in Corinth, that's what you did. Lawyers are plenty. If that's how we were in that life, why wouldn't we just work things out on our own? And Paul would say, no, because don't you, some of you have a spirit of wisdom that you can work this out here within the church. And then in five and six, you have immorality in the church. 
Sexual immorality when it comes to marriage in chapter 7 or prostitution in chapter 6, whatever it might be, all of these views came with these people into this church because they were things that were happening around Corinth. The word Corinth was turned into a verb to Corinthianize which had to do with uh, promiscuity and prostitution. You know your place is pretty bad when they turn the name of your city into a verb for some type of sin. And then you had issues of food offered to idols and eight to 10. Why? Because this city was full of idols. An order in the church in chapter 11, role of women, how to conduct ourselves in the Lord's table, all of it was here because this was where this church found itself. And so Paul, he has to address all these issues. And one of them, finally getting to chapter 12, is spiritual gifts. But he says it's a good thing. We're not going to avoid it. Just because this is becoming a matter of division within the church. Just because you guys are taking a good thing and turning it into a bad thing, I'm not going to avoid it. He says, no, brothers. Now concerning spiritual gifts, I don't want you to be unaware. A word for ignorant. I don't want you to be in the dark, misread and misled. And he's getting reports. He's getting letters in chapter 7. Chloe's house is reporting to him in chapter 1, verse 11. Whether it's a letter or a personal report, Paul says, I've got to deal with these issues in the church, and one of them is spiritual gifts. And it gives us the understanding that we have to understand this issue of the Christian life. We have to talk about it because if we don't talk about it in the absence of the truth, false teaching comes in. And a little knowledge of the truth is just as dangerous as no knowledge because then it can get twisted. But if we're going to know the truth about spiritual gifts, we're going to then know how we are equipped for the ministry and how we are equipped to serve. Now, quick note before we move on, just some of you are like wondering, hey, Adam, is there a definition of spiritual gift that before we move on to the next point, you can give us. And, and, and there's a lot of different ways maybe <clears throat> people would define a spiritual gift. You can use um, a really broad one. This is from Charles Hodge. He was a, a seminary uh, professor and president at Princeton in the 1800s. And he said, a spiritual gift is a supernatural manifestation of divine power. If you want to call it that, go for it. That one's really really broad and really big and, and kind of impressive, right? A supernatural manifestation of divine power. And that's true. But let's bring that into our time in a more practical way to talk about it. <clears throat> Another commentator says, a spiritual gift is a God-given spiritual ability for ministry. That's a good start, isn't it? Narrows it down. It's a God-given spiritual ability for ministry given to all believers at salvation and to be used for others' good and God's glory. I like that one. Well, that one had a little more like um, shoe leather faith to it. You know, a, a, a supernatural manifestation of divine power is all well and good in the abstract. But when you want to know what is a spiritual gift, because you don't just get a straight definition anywhere in the, te- in the scriptures, but when you put together the New Testament teaching, I'll give that definition again. It's a God-given spiritual ability, hence the idea of gift, spiritual, God-given, It's a God-given spiritual ability for ministry. That's its purpose. It's for ministry. Given to all believers, right? Not just the um, exclusive property of the enlightened or the truly spiritual among us. Everybody at salvation gets the Holy Spirit and therefore everybody has gifts. So it's given to all believers at salvation used for two things. And this, you can just kind of draw this out in your definition. Used for others' good and God's glory. 
That, that's what you're given spiritual gifts for. Others good and God's glory. Now, the ultimate end is for God's glory. God gets glory, glorified when what? We use our gifts for others good. Who's the others? Well, you can divide that out into two other categories. One would be the equipping of the saints, the edification of the church, the building up, the strengthening of the church. That's why you have spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters. To do good to the household of God, Paul says. To strengthen the church. But also, out of that, there's this other column called the evangelization of the lost. That you're also given spiritual gifts to evangelize the lost. To reach the world. And so that when we think about we're given spiritual gifts, uh, all of us at salvation, to be used for others' good, the edification of the church, and the evangelization of the lost. We are to strengthen the church and build it up and then as a strong church to go out and what? Have a message that can save the lost. That's pretty simple when you think about it. The complication comes in when we have half-baked truths or no truths at all. And so back to my first point, as we move on to the second, it's good to know the truth about spiritual gifts. As then, so now. So I have just a quick application question for you today. As we get into this discussion, and we'll be here for the next few weeks, just an opening heart question for you. Are you open to your preconceived views being challenged? When it comes to spiritual gifts, are you open to your preconceived views about spiritual gifts being challenged? Or have you arrived? You know, no, Adam, I've studied that. I've done a Bible study through it. Well, is the Word of God not living and active? Could it not teach you something new still? Could God not want to open your eyes to see another angle on the wonder and beauty of the gifts that you've been given from the Spirit? Of course He ha- would have something more for you. But we have to start with humble hearts and say, Psalm 119.12, Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. That's all I'm really asking your heart today is do you come humbly before the Lord this morning with whatever background you have and what you've been taught and say, God, teach me. Help me to learn humbly because it's good, as Paul would say, not to be unaware and ignorant and in the dark when it comes to spiritual gifts. So first point, it's good to know the truth about them. Second point, to know our errors around spiritual gifts is even better It's one thing to say, hey, I want to learn more about spiritual gifts. Teach me, O Lord. And it's another level to even say, help me see the things that I bring into this that could be erroneous, that could be untrue. It's one thing to want to know the truth. It's another to be able to examine our lives and see our errors. And that's the second truth that Paul lays down. These aren't Adam's ideas. Paul says in verse 2, look. I don't want you to be unaware. It's a good thing to know about spiritual gifts, verse 1. Verse 2, hey, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols. However you were led, what's he saying there? Well, back in your pre-Christian days, you were easily led astray by discussion of spiritual matters in all the things that you took part in in Corinth. You're bringing that Not just sin spiritual baggage into the church, maybe old attitudes and behaviors that have been hard to shed, but he's saying you even have some old ways in regards to what you thought were proper religious practices that still could be infecting the way you're thinking about spirituality and spiritual gifts in the church now. So it's not enough just to be eager for the truth. There's a time of introspection, Corinthians, for you to remember your past. 
because some of the errors of your present day are rooted in your errors of the past. That's the connection he's trying to make for them and that we need to make today. Why we need to be challenged, why we need to step back and look at our own lives and not just the truths we've been taught, but the experiences we've had. One is about the truth, another is about our experiences, verse two. You, you used to be these pagans, as my grandmother would call them, heathens. The only reason I knew is he, she only brought that word out on Sunday dinners at her house when we didn't pray before the meal. You heathens. It's like, sorry, Graham. Wash my hands and pray. But he's saying back in your old days of being non-believers, look, though you pride yourself, Greco-Romans, in your philosophy, in your enlightenment, you know, you're the wisest. Do you remember how mute idols led you astray? How's that for a pride check? Like, just last month or last year, you were one of those, hey, if there's a God, I'll worship him. Whether made like Psalm 115, Idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. Eyes, but they cannot see. Ears, but they cannot hear. Noses, they cannot smell. The psalmist is driving home the point. They're dead. They're not a thing. And yet you bow down before them. They can't make a sound with their throat. So he's saying to these Corinthians, um, you guys who think you just have it all together and you know everything and you're so spiritual because you see something happening on the outside amongst you when you gather and whoever can, can say it the best or do it the best or be most powerful in what looks like a gift, you automatically assume from that external appearance of something spiritual that it's legitimate. Where did that come from? It came from your old experience as pagans. Why? Because, because what these uh, former pagans with their idol worship and their false gods brought into it was all kind of bad. Historians record all the different gods and goddesses and practices and cults in Corinth. And, and one of the reasons it was so messed up is because it was just this culture that said, hey man, I, I, there's no one true God, so if you don't believe in one true God, you're going to adopt all the gods you can find, right? It's like a golden corral of gods. Like, give me it all. I don't want to miss out on something. Sorry if I just made you hungry. But if you're there worshiping in Corinth and you're down with Apollo and then, you know, you're at the golden corral and you bump up next to the sky getting some more pizza and um, you're like, hey man, you know, make small talk and it's like, oh, I'm going to offer one of these slices of pizza to my God Apollo. And he's like, really? I offer my one slice of pizza to um, uh, Artemis or, or and he, he names some God you'd never heard of. Well, what's that God for? Oh, he's the protector of the crops. Well, my God's the, the sender of the rain. Well, I want my crops protected. I'll worship that one too. So what, whatever God you could hear about, you would worship just to check the box. You're hedging your bets. Right? I mean, it makes sense. If you don't believe there's one true God and you've never been shown that that's the way, that's why they thought the Jewish people were so crazy and strange. Synagogues were already established by the time Paul got there in 50. But he's just reminding them, look, you guys, you're, whatever you thought you, you understood is, was way off. And then on top of all the false gods, how you acted, the, the sin that you engaged in that you're thinking is this out-of-body ecstasy was just totally 
full of sin. The, the cults of Bacchus and uh, Dionysus, God of wine and revelry, wild parties. They would, and this is recorded not in Bible history, but secular history. You know, having these gatherings, these cult practices where music is playing and incense is being burned and, and wine is being drunk. And then they're trying to, uh, through all type of perverted acts, get access, out-of-body experience, ecstasy. That's where you, know, you take that word and it's, it's an out-of-body experience. It's standing outside of oneself. And, and they thought, prior to coming to Christ, that higher state of mind escaping from the restraints of the physical body was it. And Paul was saying, you know what? Um, if you're associating that experience with what you expect in the church now, you're believing a counterfeit. You were led astray and somehow you're still being led to act that way. Because as we're going to see in chapter 12, certain gifts are being seen as elevated. And uh, the performance around those gifts wows everybody. But he's trying to make this point in verse 2. Hey, in your old life, that's the same thing you, you thought the most spiritual people externally were back then. Why would you import that into the church now? It was a total farce. So that's the background in verse 2, why Paul's bringing up their past. Spirituality can and will be counterfeited and co-opted by demonic spirits and brought into the church. So you got to be discerning. you got to be discerning. Now think about the way the enemy works when it comes to him being the father of lies. Um, if he's going to counterfeit something, and you would just get this from your ordinary life, what type of thing would he want to counterfeit? The ordinary or the extraordinary? Which is going to impress? Well, think about your life. What do people counterfeit? Dirt? Hey, man, come get some of my dirt. It's really good stuff. Nobody counterfeits dirt. It's dirt. It's valueless. It's just digging up a bunch in my yard. Come help today if you'd like. You don't counterfeit something worthless. What do you counterfeit? Gold. Money. It's valuable. What's happening in the church at Corinth? Satan has come in and he's counterfeited that which is most impressive and most important for this church to be able to use their spiritual gifts for the common good and the glory of God and he's getting them to what? Focus it in on themselves and some counterfeit expression of false spirituality that everybody's going, wow, that guy must have it. Now this was related to false teaching and false belief in the church in Corinth, but can we ask ourselves a question today? Are we aware that not all in the church today that seems impressive is legitimate? Paul is saying, look, Jesus saved you out of that fake world of false religion and false spirituality when you heard the gospel and responded. And I want you to learn a lesson, Corinthians. All that glitters isn't gold. Biblically speaking, all that is ecstatic and dramatic in the church is not always the real thing. <gasps> How offensive. How dare you judge other churches that way? Paul's been doing it since 55. It's called discernment. And all it's saying is don't be so quick to judge with your eyes what you could only see the externals in. So the dramatic and the ecstatic in the church here, as then, so now. 
How quickly we want to just look at a church that seems, man, listen to that preacher. Look at the size of the church, it's growing. Oh man, that music's just so powerful. Well, you know what? You don't need spiritual eyes to see any of that. If you were an unbeliever, you could show up at a church and just be impressed by the external things. Say, that guy's a really great communicator. And you could come to Christ and just leave it at that surface level of the same. Just always looking and judging by what your eyes can see. And he's saying, don't trust him. Now, he doesn't say don't trust anything. He's just saying have a little bit of discernment. Know how you were led astray. So my second challenge for us as we embark on this journey is this. Are we willing to let God's word speak louder than our experiences? The first challenge is are you open to your preconceived views being challenged? My second challenge for you is are you willing to let your preconditioned church experiences be challenged? And that often offends even more than your preconceived views. We may hold tightly to something we say we believe and then with right arguments and being shown from the scripture, we can say, oh, okay, I thought it was this, but now I see it's probably that. But what is even closer maybe to our hearts is some experience that we either have had ourselves or we have heard somebody else had or we have witnessed. And you say, but I saw it with my own two eyes. So you're gonna put your experience over the word of God? If you run into something in 1 Corinthians 12 over the next few weeks, Again, my challenge for you, are you willing to let your preconditioned experience be challenged as well as your preconceived ideas about what you think this chapter means? And guess what? I'm in the same boat as y'all. I've not preached 1 Corinthians 12 before. So I'm just as eager and excited and, okay, I want to see this. I've studied it before, but I've, I've not taken it and preached it and wanted to preach it accurately so that people are properly informed by it so they can live their lives to God's glory and for others' good. That's the payoff of this. It's not to start some theological debates in our church. And those may come. But the greater thing that I'm going to see coming out of this is from right information, what? Transformation. That we actually become who God has created us to be through the filling of the Spirit and the giving of gifts. That's the purpose of this, beloved. That's why I'm doing it. It's to not just transform us by the truth, but also in the usefulness of it. So, second challenge. We're willing to let God's word speak louder than our experiences. And um, to, to bring it all to a close, we have verse three, which is Paul saying, hey, how are we gonna do that? What's the foundation we have to stand on before we move into this? And he would say, the foundation you have to stand on is Christ. Imagine that. Third point he makes, if we're going to talk about spiritual gifts in the church, first, it's good to know the truth about them. Second, it's good to identify some preconceived or preconditioned experiences that have led to our error in living. But third, the best thing is, is to know the spiritual gift giver. That's the bottom line here before we move into anything else. Verse three, therefore, look, in light of all the error, in light of what you don't know, the ignorance and even in the, the, the false way you're living, verses one and two, here's the reality. I'm making known to you, Paul says. Here's the great divide if we're gonna try to figure out anything with spiritual gifts. Who's Lord of your life? No one speaking by the Spirit of God can say Jesus is cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. What's he saying there? That look, if we're gonna talk about spiritual gifts, 
Uh, you don't move past go if you don't have the spiritual gift giver. What, what's going on inside of you is the most important thing. Who's the Lord of your life? Not what you are displaying and saying outside of you. Because that can be manufactured. So you got to get back to the confession, the root of who you say you are. Not just defined by the gifts you think you have. We're defined by the gift giver. And that's what levels all of us at the beginning, isn't it? That whatever ideas we have, whatever experiences we have, we all came the same way. The confession of Jesus Christ is Lord. And so he sets up a contrast to really try to drive this home. And it's probably in response because he's saying now concerning spiritual gifts. And so he probably had some report. And I'm using the word probably. Why would he be addressing this thing of Jesus is accursed versus Jesus is Lord? Because whether it was a question asked in the letter he references in chapter 7 or the report from Chloe in chapter 1, there was some question about gifts. And perhaps in the church, in some of their gatherings, some people really putting on a show potentially were under the influence of the Spirit and out came an unthinkable statement. Jesus is accursed. I mean, that's the most sense we can make of this. Why He wouldn't just want to pull this argument out of thin air. So if you think about a really fired up, um, ecstatic and dramatic now in time here, uh, whether pro- somebody prophesying or speaking in tongues but blurts out something along the lines of, cursed Jesus. What? Like every head's like, what did that guy just say? Is what could have been happening when they were gathering. Is that somebody was, uh, whether you know they were really intending to preach heresy or it was just in this spirit of, I mean, it would probably be more akin to in a, in a time of open sharing or whatever, everybody's singing and somebody keeps going on and maybe blurts something like that out. And you're just like, what? Now, Galatians 3.13 does say that Jesus became our curse for us. As in what? He, he wasn't truly sinful, but he took our sin. But it, here's the reality, friends. He wasn't sin. He can't be sin. He's the perfect son of God. But he became that for us by taking our punishment. So maybe somebody had heard that teaching and twisted it. We really don't know, just from this line alone, what exactly the situation was. But to get down to brass tacks here, it it really doesn't matter what the situation was. It's what the problem is. God can't curse God. I mean, that's at the heart of blasphemy we learned in the Gospel of Mark, isn't it? He's getting accused of being what? Led by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. And Jesus uses an analogy. Hey, um, a house divided against itself cannot stand. If there's a strong man in the house and a stronger man comes in and binds him, that guy gets kicked out. It's not going to have two masters. So somebody that might be saying something as blasphemous, ridiculous as that, bottom line, they don't have the Spirit of God. And on the flip side, to draw the contrast, no one can truly say, truly say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Nobody can confess Jesus Christ is the Son of God, truly man, truly God, and and mean it from the heart unless what? The Holy Spirit fills that person and leads that person and reveals to that person that Jesus is Lord. 
Don't believe me, believe Jesus. Matthew 16. Jesus is with his disciples and he asks them, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And the disciples say, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Jesus said to the disciples, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. But my Father who is in heaven. How do any of us, from the inside out, come to the truth about the identity, the deity, the humanity of Jesus Christ? Jesus tells us it's not by flesh and blood. You didn't figure it out. You weren't smart enough, even if you're truly a genius. It's Paul's whole argument in 1 Corinthians back to 1 and 2. It's not the wise, it's not the noble, it's not the strong. It's that God, the Father, works through God the Spirit to reveal who Jesus is to us. Why? Because 2 Corinthians 4 says we've been blinded and we walk in darkness And in the same way God called out, let there be light, the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ has shone into your heart. That's how you came to Christ. God is sovereign in your salvation. Because you didn't confess Jesus as Lord, um, exegete this, except by the Holy Spirit. Where do you see yourself in that? You figuring it out? Except by the Holy Spirit and your reason? Except by the Holy Spirit and your righteousness? Except by the Holy Spirit and your comparative religions class that you came? Maybe you took a comparative religions class and it hit you that Jesus is Lord. But for you to confess it from the heart, who did it? God did it. And he's saying, for you to really say that from the heart, that's the work of God, Father, Son, and the Spirit in your salvation. Now, don't get hung up on no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit on like the literal words of that. I mean, that's, that, all kind of problems come out of that because we know you can, you can go up and pay some pagan to say Jesus is Lord. Right? You with me? I mean, if I wanted to fill this church up in the next month, I'd put a thousand bucks in one of those pockets for your giving. I'd put a thousand bucks under one of these seats on a Thursday And I'd start advertising and say, hey, 800 seats, got a one in 800 chance this week, get a thousand bucks. It would only take $52,000 out of our church budget to do for the next year. You think after a few weeks we'd be packed? Anybody that plays the lotto doesn't have one in 800 odds. Not that I would know, but I'm just throwing that out there. (laughs) Fill the church with it. So uh, somebody sits down and gets it. Oh man, thousand bucks. And then I say, you know what? It's not enough that you're just here. I got something else. For another thousand, say that Jesus is Lord. Think somebody would do it? Yeah, Jesus is Lord. Okay, here's my thousand. For another thousand, how about we baptize you? Baptize you in the name of greed, false enthusiasm, and pragmatism. Got a convert, send it in. If you really think it's a flesh and blood that we see people saved, I don't know why you're not doing that. It's just about us trying to conjure something up in somebody. 
But if it's only by the Spirit of God that someone can say that Jesus is Lord, then we are completely at what? His mercy. Asking for God to work in a way that only He can. Inside the heart. Because that's where it starts, and that's where the appeal is. And nothing I can say can make you believe. I can't, I can't persuade you. I don't, I don't have that. I wouldn't want that. You know what I want? I want a powerful message that God has given, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and put it before you and let you see how holy God is, how sinful you are, how righteous Christ was, how his death was perfect in its place for you, and how he rose again and conquered sin and death. And if you trust in him today, if you believe that from your heart, then your heart is going to be led to say, Jesus, you are Lord. You're God. You're my Savior. You're my only shot. You're my only shot to eternal life, to forgiveness of sin. And that's got to come from within you, not from outside of you. Not me trying to get you to just parrot something. Demons know that God is one and they shudder, James 2.19 says. It's not about just trying to get somebody to repeat something. Say they agree with something. This is about a supernatural work that only God can do. And those that have the Spirit of God, that do confess Jesus Christ as Lord, then they also have gifts from Him. And those gifts are to be used for His glory. So, beloved, as we embark on this time to look through 1 Corinthians 12 and to study it and to ask the Lord to to challenge and convict us and change us where we need changed with the truth of it, to help expose anything that we bring into it from our own experience that we're still trying to hold on to? Why? Not to try to start some debate over tongues and prophecy and miracles and healings. I mean, we're going to talk about that straight up, so come back. But the goal of our instruction is love from pure heart and a sincere faith, Paul says. How we'll know that this series impacted our lives is by the way we'll see it impact the church and in Hickory and around the world. That'll be the fruit of it. But if this is just another academic or intellectual exercise for some of you who just want to debate, you'll get out what you put in. But if you're really amazed that when Christ went back to heaven, he left his spirit to transform us by the gifts he's given us to see other people changed. If that gets you excited, then this this series will do something for you. That's my prayer. For the whole body to be serving every individual gifted in here. Christ died for and gave his spirit to, to to live out in the fullness of the measure of the gifts that you've been given. No comparison, no envying, no looking around. I'm not like him and I'm not like her and I'm better than that, but not as good as that. What an awful way to live as a Christian. Rather than to rejoice in a loving father whose, whose supply of gifts for his children is what? It's infinite. His arm's not too short. When I got back here three years ago, I met with a few, not just a few, a bunch of people from the church, but 
A few of them were, were people that have been here since the beginning. I got together with some who have been here the longest. And, you know, I'd been gone a couple years and I just wanted to catch up on things, but also know where they saw the church at. And what was kind of interesting is of all the people that in the first couple months I was back that I met with and um, talked with, and I would ask them the same question at the end. So, hey, um, what would be your hope for Hickory Bible Church for the next couple years? I'm not talking like off in the distance, you know, 20, 50. I'm just saying like in the next three years or so, what would you love to see God do here? And the same thing, even though the, the OGs, I call them, the originals from the beginning, you know, they weren't in co- you know, coordinating their response, but they all said the same thing. We want to see this church serving again. That's what this church has been about from the beginning. We want to see this church serve because we've been gifted to do it. And how do we get there? Me just saying, all right, everybody, let's go serve. Paul says, um, now concerning these spiritual gifts you have, Hickory Bible Church, I don't want you to be unaware. But you got something really beyond what you could ask or imagine right at your fingertips. In fact, closer than that, you've got it in yourself. You've got the Holy Spirit and you've got the gifts. The question is, what are you going to do with them? And it starts with being taught and it starts with being humble and applying it. But the outcome is when we're submitted to the Lordship of Christ, filled with His Holy Spirit, using our gifts for each other's good and God's glory, we'll see the fruit of what? A church made stronger and the mission going further. Is that the type of church you want to be part of? It is for me. Let's pray to that end. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for its power and its clarity and its truthfulness and its usefulness. And it's exciting to think about something that is so out of our normal existence. When we wake up in the morning and we just go about our day and we, we know that we can do so many things naturally. They're, they're just intuitive to us now. And yet we, we are here in front of your word seeing that there is something that's supernatural for us to do and it's first seeing who we are who, we, who we've become in Christ and the gifts that we've been given and we don't want to sell that short. How sad, tragic to not steward a gift. And we don't want to be that. We want to use them for your glory and for each other's good in this room and then around our community and in this world. We just want to be right back where the disciples were at the beginning saying just... Can we take this and be a witness to the ends of the earth and and do something amazing for the Lord with it? So help us, we ask. Spirit, teach us. Help us to see the wonderful things in the word and then to apply them so that we are built up and strengthened as you designed us to be. We thank you for the foundation of Christ laid by the apostles and prophets for the gospel that we know, the gospel that we love, the gospel that saved us, that we stand in, we thank you for that one gospel and we thank you for its, its power to save us and then all the good that comes with it. We thank you, Christ. Amen.